my Eagle Scout project, I was the senior patrol leader for a year at uh, Oak Hill School for the Blind in Connecticut. And so we used to go up there every week and, uh, you know, help run their troop meeting for them. And at that point in time, uh, Oak Hill School for the Blind also had the American School for the Deaf, which were both in Hartford, Connecticut, and they used to come together. And so we had all these kids similar age to me, some were older, some were younger, and it was, you know, trying to help them get their merit badges and just the structure of Boy Scouts for them with obviously those uh, disabilities. And I learned some super cool things from those kids. Communication was the biggest one. So, um, you know, here I am pointing for, you know, blind children to go over here and I'm yelling at deaf kids to come over here. And so it was, you know, it's, it's how to communicate with people and, you know, what you had to do and their disability were so much more enhanced in what their abilities were than, than I was as a as somebody who could see or hear. So that was just so, so powerful. Welcome to Lit Up, a founder's journey a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. During Kevin's Eagle Scout project, he learned a great deal about communicating effectively. As an able-bodied person at the age of 14, he led and mentored deaf and blind scouts for a year. It was then and continues to be a very impactful experience in his life. It was in a programming class in college that Kevin found a passion and love for technology. From never being in the library prior to practically living there. After completing only one class, he interviewed his way into his first tech job, starting what would become an impressive career in enterprise technology. Listening a lot, Kevin earned his way up the corporate ladder, going public with one company, consulting for VC firms, and helming two others as CEO. Leading an Apple reseller, Kevin's team helped bring iPads to airport kiosks, which are now ubiquitous today. A follow-up consulting opportunity related to cannabis point-of-sale systems, Kevin saw the cannabis money problem and his next big idea. What many may see as a tech, finance, regulatory, or compliance company, communication was the core to Kevin's founder's journey and company building philosophy. So many experience in his life he shared reinforced the lessons of effective communication. It will be key to their success and the industry at large as cannabis becomes mainstream. Please enjoy the founder's journey of Kevin Hart, founder and CEO of GreenCheck Verified. GreenCheck was founded in, the idea was founded in 2015, 2016, but we finally incorporated in 2017 to address the, the challenge of how does the cannabis uh, industry gain access to financial and business services? And they're connected together. Um, but our primary focus initially was uh, really just access to the banking industry uh, in general, in whole. Um, and we took a very different approach to trying to solve the problem from the beginning. You know, my background, and I'm sure this will come up, is uh, in enterprise technology. And I've been at this for a while, close to four decades. 
Uh, so, and in my variety of roles over all that period of time, I learned there's a right way to do things and maybe less than optimal ways to do things. There's never a wrong way because there's always a lesson, but um, you certainly learn to, you know, build your company first and then build your product. And so that was part of the ethos of uh, Green Check from the beginning. And we also put a real hard stake in the ground, not in the ground, we poured a building around it of, you know, working within the, the financial uh, systems, working within the banking industry as opposed to around it, uh, because we knew that was the only way that was going to be sustainable. And we had to have that relevance. And so, you know, we spent a few years defining what the company was going to look like. And uh, then we spent a year building the product and then we brought it out to market. And, you know, we really didn't start our national launch until Q4 of 2019. And then 2020, uh, COVID hit, and that obviously changed the world of buying, you know, for everybody, especially in the financial industries. But since that point in time, I'm really, really proud to say that uh, as of today, we're in over four dozen uh, financial institutions. Um, with operations that cover uh, 30, 32 states right now from a footprint perspective. We have some uh, publicly traded banks on the platform. So, you know, $50 billion uh, financial institutions down to a $40 million credit union. And the beauty of Green Check is it's designed to work the exact same way in any of those instances. It's about how do you connect these two highly regulated industries, the cannabis industry and financial services together so that they can work effectively and everybody deserves an equal opportunity. So again, that was part of our, our design. Um, we now have over 850 cannabis companies actually on the platform connected to that network of financial institutions. It's not our network. They're standalones. We're not a broker dealer. These are direct business to financial services relationships. So we're really proud of what we accomplished in a very short period of time. And right now, um, our growth trajectory, we're on fire. It's really moving. That's excellent. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I met you at a can of gather. I, we randomly sat next to each other, and I remember that was a very fortuitous moment then. And I loved how succinctly you described things that like we're not going around it, we're going right through it, and we're going to address the needs of these industries and not and not trying to scapegoat them. Uh, and those are platforms that are that are built to last uh, mm -hmm. to satisfy those. So love it. So grateful having you on the first episode. Of, yeah, that uh, was what cool. was that? I got goosebumps sitting here. Yeah, what was a different <laughs> podcast back then? Uh, sure. And now it's definitely evolved. So so for listeners, you know, today we're gonna we're gonna dig a little lot deeper into into Kevin himself, um, and then eventually we're gonna get to uh, some updates with the company. But we on Lit Up Founders, we want to know how founders became founders in the cannabis industry. So we'll let Kevin uh, share his life story today. And, and the first part, uh, you know, for everybody is we go back to your parents. Tell us about, you know, young Kevin growing yep. up. I'm assuming in Connecticut because you guys love Connecticut that much. Yep. Uh, where did where did young Kevin start? Tell us about your parents. Uh, so my mom's and I, uh, my mom came over here from Ireland when she was 19 years old. So, um, you know, in the mid, in the mid to late forties, mom's 91. Um, and she worked all her life, you know, in a factory setting. I grew up at, you know, mid middle-class, uh, mm -hmm. Bristol, Connecticut, home of ESPN. And in it, in it, it came <laughs> after me, I was already, I was already out of town. Um, but, uh, 
you know, one of five kids. Uh, my father worked in retail all his life. So they both worked hard trying to, you know, you know, give us a good home and a good yeah. family. What uh, order, were, were you the oldest? Were you the youngest? Where were I'm you at? I'm the second. I'm the okay. second. Um, okay. So I'm uh, the second four boys, one girl. Um, my sister was the princess and, you know, and she, she's, she's a phenomenal sister. So we're still all close. What was, um, what was that family dynamic with, with you guys growing up? What were some of your activities when, when you guys were, were kids, you know, either you, you or yourself or, or with the group? Well, uh, work was instilled in us early. Uh, my father was a taskmaster. Um, mm-hmm. he, he was, ex, he was former Navy, no such thing as ex former Navy. Mm-hmm. Um, so paper routes from the age of eight mowing lawn, shoveling the driveway. And, uh, you know, it was all about doing the job right. You know, you couldn't cut corners. No way that was allowed in my household. Uh, and so we were also involved in sports, but I was actually also involved in uh, Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts um, mm-hmm. all the way through my life. And, you know, that was, uh, those were great foundation, foundational learning lessons in the 60s and 70s for me as an individual and they're also great outlets for energy yeah what drew you to them was it like i'm i'm, I'm you know we shared a pre-interview i'm an eagle scout as well like for me it was yep. just camping and being outside and you know i love you'd love the service projects but it's really just nature i resonated with what was it for you well it was it was uh, it was the camping the being outside and but it was for me it was uh, being able to have a lot of diverse knowledge so my older brother he's also an eagle scout so he's three years older than me i kind of followed in his footsteps but he was much more academic than me and you know i was always outside climbing a tree or doing something and so but it was that opportunity to learn about things that you weren't going to learn about in the old library with the encyclopedia botanical and hardcore books and or you know you weren't going to get it in school astronomy uh life-saving first aid you know all the merit badges and so it was that diversification of education and knowledge that was always just like so cool and it was the hands-on experience of all of that. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm 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 tactile, right? I, you know, to sit and read a book for entertainment is one thing, but if you put a if you put a textbook in front of me, yeah, I'm I'm gonna be the kid in the back of the room goofing off more okay. times than not. I'm glad you learned early like what resonates with you and what does not. So mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I know a big capstone for a lot of uh, Boy Scouts is is their Eagle Project, um, and you had shared a little, little bit before our interview that that was a, a formative event in your life. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I was so fortunate. Um, so uh, my Eagle Scout Project, I was the senior patrol leader for a year at uh, Oak Hill School for the Blind in Connecticut, and so we used to go up there every week and. Uh, you know, help run their troop meeting for them. And at that point in time, uh, Oak Hill School for the Blind also had the American School for the Deaf, which were both in Hartford, Connecticut, and they used to come together. And so um, we had these, uh, we had all these kids similar age to me, some were older, some were younger. And um, it was, you know, trying to help them get their merit badges and just, you know, the the structure of Boy Scouts for them with obviously those uh, disabilities. And I learned, uh, I learned some super cool things from those kids. Communication was the biggest one. You know, here I am pointing for, you know, blind children to go over here 
and I'm yelling at deaf kids to come over here. It's how to communicate with people and, you know, what you had to do and their disability were so much more enhanced in what their abilities were than, than I was as a be as somebody who could see or hear. So that was just, that was just so, so powerful. So that was cool. That definitely resonates with you at that point. Is, is, you know, you're a young adult at that point. And, 14 years old. Yeah. Yeah. 14. And, and you're like, oh, I have, it's not everyone's the same. I have things differently. It yeah. brings you out of that group. So yeah. that was very fortuitous so, was interesting. Um, for you to have to go through that. Uh, Thanks for let me share that. Yeah, no, I'm, my, my pleasure. I know those are formative experiences and we learn a lot from those things. So you graduate high school. Mm-hmm. There's always that big decision where like, yep. what am I going to do with my life? What's next? Well, I always knew I wanted to go to college. I didn't know where I wanted to go to college. So again, I had an older brother. Um, he was up at Boston University. I used to go visit him. Um, very, very interesting as a 15, 16 year old going to Boston University and visit your older brother and spending the weekend up there. Yeah, you learned a lot uh, so, during that too, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Uh, I learned I like college, uh, the aspect of what college life would be. And unfortunately, uh-huh. I learned to like it too much because, you know, the uh, side story, I never graduated from college. Um, so I, uh, I went to Southern Connecticut in New Haven. And um, in, my, in my sophomore year, uh, I took an assembly level uh, programming class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I, where I went to high school, we didn't have computers. It was, it was that age, but you know, Bristol Eastern high school just wasn't that leading edge, great place for high school education. So in my timing and my age put me in that weird spot, but and this was, this I, was in the late seventies just to give, yeah, a little I bit graduated of frame reference. high school in 77. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took an assembly level programming class and I just fell in love with it. And, you know, I don't think I, I don't think I had stepped foot in the library at, at Southern before that class. And it was in the basement where the computers always were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once I found that class and it was in there and working on those punch cards, et cetera, you couldn't get me out of there. I, they, I just got hooked. They didn't even um, ask for ID when you went to go check in anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't even think they asked for it back then too, but, uh, you know, so it was, uh, but it was, it was just amazing. And so what happened is, uh, you know, I applied for a job in New Haven, Connecticut, and they hired me. I had taken one class, I just, you know, I interviewed my way into a, my first programming class, programming it, job. Good balance of savviness and, uh, and, and technical skills. So communications, communications, <laughs> communications yeah. right there. So what was that first job looking at like, and then where did that passion kind of lead you through? So it was at uh, the Hospital of St. Raphael's in New Haven. It's part of the Yale, Yale University Health System in New Haven, uh, the megatropolis. But um, I was a programmer, and this was on an IBM 360 uh, DOS VSE platform. And, you know, punch cards, COBOL, you know, uh, removable disc, tapes, uh, you oh, know, man. the card reader, the card printer, the room full of people doing data entry all the time. And... That led to uh, packaged software with a company called MSA, Management Science America, who was, you know, one of the, you know, uh, uh, vanguard in terms of enterprise software based in Atlanta. And I used to beta test products for them. 
What, what kind of stuff were they making? Was it like spreadsheets, stocks? I mean, this is very early yeah, on. Spread, <laughs> spreadsheets. Yeah. We had that old printer paper where you, you just had to constantly bring big boxes of paper up to, on your own. Uh, general ledger, accounts mm-hmm. payable. Um, and then we also had HBO, Metapack. And when that was for bed control and uh, census control and medical records. And so... Um, you know, it's these combinations, but one job could run at a time because it was on tape reels. It, it took hours and hours to do what, boom, done today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the foundational learning of, okay, wait a minute. You have all these disparate sources of information and systems. Think about a hospital environment and purchasing and, and payroll and everything. We did everything there. And then it all came together and then it went back out. So it was the funnels, you know, and I always became enamored with that, you know, information in, data back out. Was that, and did, with, within your university courses, and I, I know you eventually went to, to Quinnipiac, you were a, you were a Bobcat. Um, yep. Did you definitely go further down the, uh, the IT route there once you, you found yeah. that? Yeah, when I went to Quinnipiac, that's all I was doing was taking uh, more com- uh, computer science course, in, you know, in the master's program, et cetera. Even though I never matriculated, you know, you can you can register for a class, pay and go. And so, you know, that became part of it. And um, I got recruited by MSA, you know, mm-hmm. to come come work for them because, you know, back then they would create, uh, you know, create all the software and the running industry, the joke in the industry was you just hope the UPS truck slowed down enough. So when they threw the box of tapes off the back, it didn't break. There was no such thing as implementation or consulting services. It's around, here's your tape, here's your program, try to figure out how to make it work. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that's how that worked back then. So I was recruited to go work at MSA and I actually was, you know, uh, doing speaking engagements for them to their user group or people they were trying to get, you know, to say, this is how you install their general ledger. This is how you install their AP. This is how you get it to work. This is what it was like. Um, and so I went to work there. I was there for uh, eight years in various roles. Were you down in Atlanta for that or were you, were you working up? Never moved. No, okay. I was uh, out of Connecticut and uh, the New Jersey office. So I always lived in Connecticut. I just commuted all over the world wow. with MSA. That was a very fortuitous job. And I'm assuming you loved it though, because it spoke to your oh. passions that you're a great communicator and you love the tech. Yeah, it was fun. I learned a lot. I met some amazing, amazing people. And, you know, you can't spit, you know, maybe maybe not as much anymore because we've all aged out, but, you know, through through the 90s, 2000s, et cetera, you can spit without hitting MSA, Dun & Bradstreet, McCormick & Dodge, uh, person in any software company. That's amazing. And then to have that enterprise experience so early on in, in, in your in your career. Mm-hmm. What made you leave? What what brought the next chapter in your life? So we're so, we're what, what what time frame are we about now? We're, we're about in, we're in 96, 96, okay. 98. And okay. so what happened is um, you know, Dun & Bradstreet software uh, made some uh, you know, Dun & Bradstreet brought uh, MSA McCormick and Dodge and formed Dun Bradsheet Software. Um, and they were making some uh, leadership changes, some decision changes, some go-to-market changes. Uh, and so quite a few people have left and they started all these other software companies. And so somebody that I worked with recruited me to help uh, launch a Swedish company called Industry Mathematique International. 
IMI for short, it's easier. Um, they had uh, they had opened offices here uh, in the U.S. and they were part of the Oracle CPG best of breed suite. And so that cycle of best of breed, centralized, decentralized, you know, that was that was part of it. And I went there to run their uh, services organization for the Americas. And so I was recruited by somebody I work with at MSA, went there. And two weeks into the job, he quit. And I was like, wow, well, wait, <laughs> you, know, you recruited me for six months. And he goes, don't worry. I told the Swedes you'd do a better job than I did. I'm like, they're never going to hire me. I'm your excuse. I'm your Band-Aid. <laughs> and, you know, communications. I had actually, you know, they let me take over his job. And so I was there for uh, two years and we took that company public. And wow. uh, that was a blast. And yeah. that introduced me to an even broader global set of customers and problems. What were some of the lessons that you took away from that? When you think back, you know, about that time there, like what was, what were those lessons? I, that, that was good. That was a great, uh, you know, time for me to realize I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did, you know? Um, and I learned a great phrase uh, from the Swedes. We were a Swedish company. I got to go there every six weeks and uh, work with them. And, uh, you know, fascinating culture, super cool people. But, you know, uh, this gentleman I work with, Carl Yulsen, uh, super cool guy. Um, he said uh, in his Swedish accent, uh, God gave us two ears and one mouth. Use them in that proportion. And, man, that was like, that stuck with me so hard then. And, I like that. It, yeah. And I still use it to this day. And I give Carl... Carl credit for the it. biggest part um, of communication is uh, like active listening right there. Got right. to understand your audience before they can understand you. Right. Back to the, the back to the Eagle Scout project, right? Mm -hmm. Pointing to blind kids and yelling at deaf kids. And it was just like, wait, this doesn't work. Think, think, think. So it was that combination. Going public must've been a, a, a very unique experience because not everyone gets to go through that. What was that yeah. like that, you know, and, and you in a leadership role there? Uh, highly educational. Um, got to, you know, so, and it was my first foray into, you know, raising capital, if you will. And I, you know, an, an IPO is nothing but raising capital because you still have to, you know, sell to the bankers who's the lead, et cetera. So it was kind of, that was very, very interesting how they think, what's important to them. Because um, I've always been focused on the results, okay, you know, and optimization of results and return. Uh, on the results it doesn't have to be here doesn't have to be financial it just has to be are we moving ahead and um it it helped me look at things in a in a broader context and understand how the mark what the markets are looking at and especially as part of the oracle cpg suite we went public on our own but we were standing next to and or on the shoulders of oracle you know as a name there so you know that was interesting to understand the underpinnings of how that all worked. So all the industry trends, not just for yourself, but for for those partner organizations yeah, as the well. the macro level, especially globally. Yeah. Because Did it was you, global supply chain. That's, I mean, just all the things that are coming through, which I'm sure is going to help you out uh, later on in life. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so you, did you leave there after the IPO or what was that? No, uh, I, exit I, like? I, stuck around, I stuck around. So some people left and, uh, and you know, some uh, some of the people that made a lot of money actually started forming their own investment uh, companies as a result of this. Uh, and there's some big names today. I won't share them on this podcast, but okay. you know they're still friends. But they, you know, they actually formed their companies 
with the resulting cash from that. And so that was interesting. And that actually brought me to, um, eventually, I went and joined this other company. It was called Optum. And Optum was formed. You know, the idea was we had this CPG suite and everything was on the order management and, uh, you know, with all the work within uh, the Oracle CPG suite, we thought we'd create an enterprise class company internally based upon optimizing the supply chain. So there's enterprise class products back then, but they were more around accounting and payroll, et cetera. We were going to create one uh, strictly on the supply chain side of things. So this was like a big operations management problem of like, how do we optimize? Here's our constraints. Like, how do we, mm-hmm. how do we get, you know, how do we become more efficient with that? Right. Um, and you said this was around you know, 1998, 2005 that you were there. Yes, I was there uh, for uh, seven seven years as wow. uh, president COO. I went over running services, and then uh, you know uh, we shook some things out, and I became president and COO. But you know, Optum was a great idea, but the initial execution was—I uh, call it the Noah's Ark of uh, software. Only yeah, you were saying that. What, yeah. what, what, what is that? I mean, I'm imagining what that means. What does that mean? Well. You know, they, the Optum was formed by taking a company called Medicis, which was a bulk chemical transportation company based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a company called American Turnkey, which was based in Costa Mesa, California, which was focused on fast-moving, piece-pick uh, warehouse management systems. Okay. So they were those two things don't align, yeah. and so the goal was how are we going to get these to work together? So. You, you started with different technology sets. You started with different customers. You were started with solving different problems. So, you know, the high-level strategy was was good. Mm-hmm. But the execution of putting these two together, you know, it wasn't Noah's Ark. It was, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but, you know, the DNA was never going to come together. This was just, just not going to work. And so, so, but you tried, but you tried really hard for seven years. Well, no, I, when I got there, that, 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 that the union had been consummated. So part of my role is a little bit of unwinding it and or getting it to, to work together. So, you know, we divested some of the, some of the technology that, you know, didn't make sense. We bought two companies uh, into it. Um, We grew our customer base dramatically. We grew our revenue. Um, We started, uh, we launched a great software as a service before it was software as a service uh, platform called TradeStream. And uh, we had uh, a great client in Lucent Technologies. Um, And uh, we had a profound impact on their operating uh, capabilities. You can imagine all the procurement they have to do from all different places. Uh, procurement, third-party logistics, third-party service providers, et cetera. And so again, how do you get the right product in the right hands at the right time? And everybody understands it because this is coming from all over the place and it's got to end up at a cell tower pad for synchronized build and turning it all on. And so it was a, it was such a cool project. And it was, again, you know, the next step in, you have all this information you know, how do you pull it all in, utilize it effectively, and then present it back to the people that actually need it. Another another trend that's going to come in very handy uh, mm-hmm. later on down in life. Hey, everyone, it's Brian Weber here. Just wanted to pause for a quick second and thank you all for listening and all the positive feedback and support we've received about the show. It means a great deal. I need to ask you for a small favor that won't cost anything but a minute of your time 
and it would mean the world to this show and our guests. Somehow, this show about the founders of the modern cannabis industry is not showing up when searching for cannabis or entrepreneur in many of the podcast platforms. That's obviously a big problem for a show about cannabis entrepreneurs. One of the things we can do to solve that is with reviews. Giving just one minute of your time to submit a review of this show, using the words cannabis and entrepreneur in it will help us get found so we can keep sharing these amazing founders journeys. For new listeners, I really hope you consider this after enjoying this show. For our continuing listeners, if you can do this right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. Go ahead, hit pause. I'll wait right here. Thank you. That was a big move. You were there for a very long time. Um, and I know there might've been a little thing in the middle of that, but like what eventually led you, I mean, you were CEO of TechServe from, from 2011 to, to, to 2013. Like that was a, that's a big shift into getting more, you know, there is some, there's a lot of business there, but consumer tech as well. What, uh, what led you out of, uh, what led you out of Optum? So we sold it to uh, Click Commerce, a publicly traded company that was based in Chicago, and they were doing uh, quite a few roll-ups at that time. And you know, we sold the company, the technology, the client base to Click Commerce. Um, I could have gone to work at Click Commerce; it would have required me relocating to Chicago, and you know, with my kids at that age, at that point in time, and with my uh, wife and I, we decided that isn't something we we're going to do. And so, in between Optum and TechServe, um, I spent a, that decade plus working for VCs and private equity folks uh, fixing portfolio companies. Um, and so, um, there's a lot of founderitis out there. Is the term I apply to it? You know, brilliant ideas, but maybe lacking in execution. Great at execution, but lacking ideas. And I never profess to be the smartest guy in the room. I, I walk in thinking I'm the dumbest guy every time. And sometimes that gets proven correct still. Uh, but, you know. Going go back in, to the uh, two ears, one mouth, right? Just go in and listen, understand. And then, you know, how do, how do you make them more successful? And, uh, you know, I had a couple of uh, uh, tenants that I, I would not deviate from. Um, if, if you wanted somebody to go in and just be uh, Chainsaw Al Dunlap and slash expenses, I'm not your guy. Um, but, you know, if we can understand the problem, we can come to a conclusion. Uh, I had to have the authority to uh, help the founders and or possibly replace the founders properly and professionally. And I also always had to have the latitude to fire board members. Because a lot of times, that's where some of the problems germinate from. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, great lessons, great mm -hmm. lessons. But and that's really where I learned too. You know, as as a as an entrepreneur, it's et cetera. Even having worked for other companies, build your company first, then build your product. So the values that you want, the team that you want. Mm -hmm. What's what, the problem you're going to solve? Technology can do anything. That's been proven time and time and time again. But do you understand what you're building and where it needs to go? And does the market care? Those are very valuable lessons. So that's that's great experience in that time. How did you end up in TechServe? So I was a uh, I got a phone call from a recruiter, and I was candidate number forty nine for the CEO position at TechServe, and this was shared to me by the recruiter. And so I'm glad she's know, not setting high expectations here. <laughs> yeah, he no, he didn't. He, but he, and, you know, it was kind it was kind of interesting. So a really really quick story, uh, you know. So. 
you know, get all the information. Uh, you know, I love to learn background. They didn't know me. I went to TechServe. I secret shopped them a bunch of times. I had other people go in to secret shop them. Uh, in case anybody doesn't know, TechServe was the, you know, they were the OG. They were the original Apple store uh, anywhere. And uh, Apple will uh, publicly, maybe less so, but privately give them credit for being the foundation for the Genius Bar, etc. So, um, so anyways, I, I went to the interview and uh, I did not have a Mac. I didn't even, you know, I didn't have an iPhone then. They were out. They were just brand new. I, I still had my trusty BlackBerry, etc. And so I meet with the two founders of TechServe, fascinating guys, David Lerner and Dick Deminas. It's just super cool guys, amazing respect for them. Um, and But they had very different models. So TechServe had been around at that point for 23 years, and it was going through this evolution, but Apple's opening retail stores and really, really taking market share from them, uh, even though they were a much cooler place. And so they wanted to diversify the business, get more involved in uh, B2B side of things, et cetera. So um, at the meeting, um, at the end of the meeting, uh, I'm getting in the elevator and um, we, we didn't have uh, they didn't have tense moments, but we had some, we had some direct conversations in, during the interview process as to what I felt was important. Remember, I'm candidate number 49. You got to stand I'm out. Thinking, I'm thinking number 50 is behind me. No, I think I'm already done. I think, you know, based upon the demeanor in the room, this interview is over. And so I get in the elevator and the recruiter was sitting next to me the whole time in this meeting. He comes out to the elevator after and he's out of the conference room and he's like, dude, you're killing me in there, you know, because he wanted to laugh, but he couldn't. And I'm, you were I'm being laughing. fairly direct, right? You're just I like, being, listen. I am direct. Yeah, I am direct, <laughs> you know. If you, if you if you always tell the truth, you can never forget it. So, you know, another lesson learned. Painfully so. Uh, but, you know, lesson learned, and now I stick with it. So I get in the elevator, and I go, hey, I go, number 49, going down. <laughs> the doors closed, and it left. Well, it turns out, you know, he came back, and he goes, David thinks you're the biggest asshole in the world. Sorry, curse. And he goes, but the board loved you. And the other guys loved you. So I ended up going to work there. And I, you know, I was there for two years. Um, I, I know I had a big, big impact. Um, David Dick and I still did not see eye to eye and uh, on, on certain things. But I had a tremendous impact in diversification of the business, growth of the business, expansion of the business. And, um, and I had a lot of fun. That's that's but, awesome. It's hard to compete. I mean, like we share this. I, I was an Apple consultant way, way a number of yep. uh, lifetimes ago, and it's hard to compete with the Apple Store. And everyone you know who's listening knows the Apple Store and the allure of it. And, and you know, it's like going to church there. And how do you how do you compete with that? I know TechServe did a lot more pro stuff and a lot more business mm-hmm. events to to serve those those markets that they serve best. So Apple made more money when TechServe sold a product than when Apple sold a product. Believe it or not. Because cost of sales, the margin was that thin for TechServe. Wow, 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 wow. Yep. So you're there for two years, first CEO gig. Um, yep. We're getting near 2016, 2015, when, when, mm-hmm. uh, when you start to have a really interesting idea. How do, we, how do we get to that idea? So while I was at TechServe, uh, I, was, uh, I was in uh, Terminal 5 at JFK. And uh, OTG, which is the hospitality company, <clears throat> they had put together a uh, they put together a touchscreen TV, uh, you know, I you know, not an iPad, a touchscreen model to order things within the airport. 
And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And, you know, and I was boarding the flight and I was going to Apple, actually, going out to Cupertino. And the iPads were out. And I was like, you know, I was with my head of sales. And I said, you know, we, we, should, we should find this guy who runs OTG and we should put iPads in here. You know, this could be something really cool. Um, and he's like, yeah, but how are we going to do that? I go, it's a detail. We'll figure that out. But, you know, let's see if we can do it first. And so I found uh, Rick Blatstein and I said, you know what, you should really do this with iPads. And we started having these conversations and lo and behold, the iPads you see in the airports all over the U.S. and in Toronto uh, was because of the work that we did at TechServe. And so I had to go hire uh, some really smart people to figure out how to deploy those iPads in mass. But, you know, if you think about that concept of being able to, once you walk into place, everything became available. So it's online shopping, but in a contained environment. And, you know, when I was at Optum, we had, uh, that was part of the dot bomb error and stuff. So we had iFulfillment and Zappos and uh, Webvan was a customer of ours, et cetera. So I had all these experiences, but we had to condense that down into a time frame more. And, but we also had to integrate the payment at that point in time so that OTG wasn't getting left holding the bag proverbially and cash wise and how to do all that and synchronize all that in this little itty bitty iPad. Okay. In an airport environment. And this was before mobile device management was a thing before really a lot of these deployment things before Apple iOS had built in some of their, those controls that allow Mm -hmm. corporations to control these and deploy these. And then you got to throw on PCI compliance and payment acceptance and, and how all that gets taken care of in a very secure, but yet also public environment. Yep. It was so cool to be able to build that. We had a ball and we learned so much during that. That's a fantastic win right there. And yeah, every time I I walk by uh, uh, those iPads, I'll think of you guys in the future. I remember, I remember hearing about that from, from different channels back then. Mm -hmm. So from there you're like, okay, when does cannabis start coming into play? When does, so, when does that happen? Um, I I tried to buy TechServe, and they didn't like that idea. So uh, I got fired. Wow. <laughs> I brought okay. it up in a conversation on a board meeting on July 20, June 26 at 4.30. Not that I remember the details here. Not at uh, all. And then <laughs> June 27th at 9.30 in the morning, they fired me because they thought it might be a conflict of interest because they weren't interested in selling anymore. Mm-hmm. They're like, things are great. We're making money. What do we? Why do we want to sell it? But... Anyways, and again, still love David and Dick. No, no animosity to them at all. Um, and so in 20, 2015, you know, the iPads and airports, et cetera, I was approached to build a point of sale system for the cannabis industry. My whole background, the iPads, et cetera. And they have this burgeoning industry and they have much the same problems that a consumer has when you get into an airport environment. Okay. What's available? You know, how do I get it? You know, and I can't touch any of this stuff. It's behind the counter. So how do, you know, how do I understand what's available and is it in stock and what are the modalities? What are the interactions? What's the entourage effect? And so I was approached to build point of sale and I started flying around the country and, you know, exploring what cannabis point of sale systems look like and what are the needs. Again, build, understand the business, then build the system. So I, I flew out, I went to Harborside. You know, the the OG of cannabis, obviously. And Angela, uh, yeah. how many trips I took out there and uh, David Wedding Dress, you know, let me in the inner circle. They were on their third POS at that point in time. 
um, you know, which is a painful implementation process. Um, and so I got to see firsthand, okay, this is, this is what's needed. This is the competition, but then also understanding the market. I was like, okay, this is interesting, but I keep hearing about this banking challenge, mm-hmm. banking, banking, banking. And what, what resonated with you? Cause I remember like, I mean, I, I've been POS consultant for seven years and I remember like some of the early things was like, I won't name any names, but like system downtimes, just bad software, things weren't working right. What made you gravitate from the, the, the tech side of things to the, to the banking side of things? What, 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 the, what drew you there instead of the, the, the POS? So it was, uh, you know, uh, I saw in, inside of, uh, you know, David made it abundantly clear through conversations and, you know, physical representations. We'll leave it at that. You know, cash, the problem of cash and what that looked like. And, you know, at that point in time, cannabis was about a $3 billion industry. It's in 13 states. And I saw what the point of sale landscape was like. And I also saw the price points that they were already establishing at that point in time. And again, I'm an enterprise software person. Um, I'm about, you know, uh, scaling companies, uh, IPOs, et cetera. And just none of the dynamics were lining up for me in terms of, you know, what's this marketplace going to look like. But anytime you can, uh, you know, look at where the largest funnel of opportunity is. Okay. So I saw how big Harborside is. It was a $3 billion industry. And even back then it's like, it's going to be $50 billion in 2025. You, if you can place yourself at that largest funnel of opportunity and solve what was then and still today is one of their biggest operational challenges, access to financial and business services, that's a much more compelling uh, technical business problem to try to solve. So again, it's back to all this really cool information that gets all over. How do you get, how do you ingest it all? How do you use it? And then how do you make it available in the right use models? That was super, super cool. So it was, it was after a visit uh, to OTG, uh, flying back home on a red eye that I took my uh, trusty composition books, which mm-hmm. I know you're a fan of as mm-hmm. well. Old school. I got my, I got the history and green check behind me. Um, I just started scribbling. I'm like, this is the problem we want to solve. And so I, just shelved the whole concept of point of sale and said, we have to figure out the banking. So that was your spark moment then. That was the moment that you're like, oh, this is it. Mm-hmm. This, this is what's next. Yes. How did that evolve from that moment on? So it's you, your your notepad, your comp book right there going at mm-hmm. it. What, what did that, what did the first few months uh, look like for you? So one uh, at that point in time, uh, somebody I worked with at TechServe, Paul Dunford, and he uh, Paul Dunford's a co-founder, and he runs client engagement here at uh, at uh, at GreenCheck. He uh, he was on some of those trips with me, and so we went back, and I said, "We're changing direction. This is what we need to do. Let's start figuring this out." And so we would just whiteboard, whiteboard, whiteboard. I had had banks as customers from my uh, MSA days, Dun Bradstreet software days. Um, but I never sat inside of a bank and worked. And so I knew what we didn't know. And so we started surrounding ourselves with people that understood banking. But then we also started surrounding ourselves with people who uh, uh, understood the cannabis industry, including John Gadea, who uh, works here at Green Check. Uh, he wrote the State of Connecticut program. He's kind of like the grandfather. And uh, he had a team at DCP, but he wrote that's uh, the state program. And Connecticut is recognized as having one of the best defined, well-run 
uh, medical programs in the country. And so we just started pulling more and more people together. And we just spent a lot of time whiteboarding and then radiated out. Okay, here's our ideas. Here's our concept. When we started talking to people at the Federal Reserve, former senior examiners, we started talking to people at state government, federal government, and said, here's our concept. Here's what we're trying to do. And we spent two and a half, three years doing that. You run a listening tour. We are on a listening tour and, you know, taking the information and designing the company and designing the solution. But we didn't write a single line of code during that whole period of time. Because you wanted to build a company first before you start building the product. Exactly. That mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. So what were some of the hiccups along the way? Because I've, I've, you know, we had another someone in your space um, doing something like this. And it was like, you're getting a lot of no's. You're getting a lot of like, this is crazy. Like these are two super highly regulated industries. You know, like... You know, a lot of people saying probably not on this. So what were some of those obstacles you had to overcome to even get meetings? Well, it, it went back to, you know, working within the banking industry instead of around it. And so we knew we had to be able to convince the chief compliance officer, chief risk officer, BSA team, um, AML team, et cetera, within the bank to start to look at this industry as a possibility. Um, and we knew that uh, with compliance as the touchstone, that is the centerpiece of GreenCheck, our compliance rules engine. And we filed three patents against that compliance rules engine back in 2017, 2018. Um, we made great progress there. Um, and it was about, you know, how do you let good money into the banking industry and how do you keep the bad money out is the way I always summarized it. Um, because all the rest of it becomes, you know, I'm not simplifying it at all. It's a very complex problem, but it becomes me- it becomes mechanics, right? Yeah. You have to be able to show that at a single dollar level, time after time after time, day after day. Um, and so that became the focus point. We just kept coming back and saying, this is what matters to you. This is what matters. And starting with that in mind, I noticed that... Um you, in one of the interviews, you call yourself a reg tech company more than a fintech, although you're dealing with finances that are going on there. Um, yeah, I think we are reg tech. You know, fintech, you know, fintech, reg tech, people put different labels, but it's about rules and regulations. And, you know, part of the reason why, you know, I think that that's firmly where we belong is we're a software company. We're a product company. We're, we're delivering a solution. But you know, it's not only, you know, designed to solve the problems of today, which is why the design of the company and compliance rules engine so matters so much, but it's how does it evolve? We're at the BSA low bar today. Safe Banking Act and all these other things, there's going to be more rules and regulations. How does your platform that financial institutions are counting on you and have partnered into this industry, how does it evolve? Because you not only have to have differentiation, but you have to have relevance and sustainability. And so a financial institution can't go backwards because Safe Banking Act comes out. That should be the springboard to go forward. You know, and keep leveling up and other... keep leveling up. Exactly. So you're starting with, we need to build this modularity. We're, I mean, like, because different states have different regulations, including different municipalities. So you're thinking from a very you know, macro level, but also down to the micro of like, we, you know, if we're going to build a state compliance package, we need to have room for different municipalities, even to the store level. Um, to have different rules and regulations uh, applied to them. How do you go from zero to one? Well, a lot of conversations, but the, those conversations started with listening. Again, 
You know, why? Yep. Okay. I can tell you who we are and I can tell you what, what, what we were aiming to do. Um, you know, would you be, would you entertain entering this industry and what would your objections be? What are the reasons, you know, why? So that um, early on, are you, you're getting funding rounds now, you're building a business plan, you're, you know, you're getting going. Um, what were some of those challenges with the initial funding? And also not to piggyback a question here, but like, what was your first client look like? And, you know, partner, partner, client dispensary, but also bank uh, as well, because you have the, the, the dual sided there. Yeah. So funding, funding always was a challenge because, you know, it's, it, you know, for a whole host of reasons, more complex than, than I, than I had imagined, but uh, thankfully we did have some, you know, good backers early on and they continue to stay with us, which is great. Um, but we did find, uh, you know, here in Connecticut, uh, a credit union that uh, two credit unions actually that wanted to, you know, give this a shot. Uh, great things about credit unions, community-based, and these are community-based programs. Um, the regulations within the state of Connecticut helped us candidly, you know, to be here. We're fortunate that we launched in Connecticut because the program is is so strict, and so there was risk. At, um, it was viewed as less risky, if you will, um, because the way the the problem the cannabis is sold here, um, and boy, did we learn some lessons early on, you know, with the, with those clients, because again, you know, talking about technology, you still had to get all the integration to work. And then you still had to be able to, you know, manage that information, then turn it into utilization of information, especially for, you know, the regulatory reporting and how it's viewed and the visibility. So that, that those were the early ones. And, you know, there's still customers today. Mm-hmm. That's a well. That, you got to have those early ones, you know. Like mm-hmm. you're going to learn on them, and you got to be transparent and say, "Yep, yeah, this is this is going to be a learning process for both of us." But uh, uh, thanks for being a pilot one. Um, what was about that time? When was that first customer like turned on and working for you guys? Uh, early uh, spring 2019. Okay, so yep. relatively recently, relatively yes. recently. So mm-hmm. we've been about two years since uh, since you guys have been live. And I think it's been a better story uh, going forward. So Connecticut was your first state. What did that projection look like for you guys as, as you're growing and, and some of the challenges that you're dealing with uh, uh, now getting up to you know, 650 organizations within, within the two very short years and a global pandemic on top of it? Yeah. So uh, certainly, you know, I think the biggest lessons that we learned you know, throughout this process, Brian, was you know, our method of presenting to the market. Um, we used to say, can, how, and why, you know, can a financial institution bank cannabis help them understand that they can, how would they do that? Well, obviously green check, you know, we think we have the best solution. Uh, and then why would they do that? You know what I learned, we learned painfully, uh, that we had to flip that. Okay. And we flipped it and we now lead with the why, you know, if you give somebody a reason why they're always going to want to figure out how. And so, you know, what we learned is, um, you know, you have to give them a financial model of what does this opportunity look like? You can't, you know, the, the, the way I always explain it is I can't go to a bank in Toledo, Ohio and say, you want to be part of a $50 billion industry. There's no context. I can't say you want to be part of a $6 billion industry in the state of Ohio. No context. You're the CEO, CFO of a bank in Toledo, Ohio. Here's what the market opportunity looks like for you. 
here's all the revenue opportunities of, of having a financial relationship with these compliant businesses. They have to be compliant and you can exhibit it. And here's the impact of you on a five-year model. And let's build that together. And so, you know, it really became the, you know, why would anybody enter this space? And then the can, you know, that's softened up where, you know, everybody knows nobody's going to jail, provided you do something right. Don't be ease, uh, provided you're doing this correctly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then how? You know, we exhibit through our professional services and our solution that, again, we we think we have the leading solution in the marketplace. And we price it where we don't charge the CRBs any money to be on the platform, 100% free, remove the friction. And uh, for our clients, you only pay if you actually have banking relationships. So there's no investment in software. And so you hear, here you have a market with no customer acquisition costs, virtually none, right? They're outside waiting to be let in. They're banging on the door quite literally. Yep. No CapEx. And you have a scalable platform that, you know, provided you're successful, your partner in this is going to be successful with you. So um, applying a lot of earlier lessons and uh, lessons specific to this, to it. And I think that's made huge difference in our acquisition and yeah. retention and growth. What about the, um, and that's, that's those are t- t- fascinating insight into the business model uh, there. And it makes, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. What about on the other end in, in dealing with, cause you're basically a very enhanced gateway, you know, from a payment scape, you're integrating either standalone or you're integrating with, um, you know, with some of the leading POSs that you, you didn't want to become in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that working out for you guys? Like, what are some of the, I, I did see that your, your, uh, new partnership with, with Flowhub, but, um, what were some of the other ones that you're working on and what's your strategy with that? So we, we always took the uh, point of view, uh, that we would be uh, point of sale agnostic and we are also core banking system agnostic. Um, because again, it's connecting the industries. Um, it's not about connecting very specific pieces and you can't go to a financial institution and say, well, you can bank the cannabis industry, but it has to be this technology that they, they don't have that requirement anywhere else. And you can't, you also can't go to the, you know, the banking industry and say, you have to have this core. So that was part of the, the principles from the beginning. The cannabis businesses themselves, again, sw- switching through point of sales, et cetera, and or what they do, you know, they like the fact that we make this easy for them. Um, and, you know, banking shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be the hardest part of running your business. And so, again, how do you remove friction? The thinking of supply chain, the thinking of data, the thinking of touch points, the thinking of what actually has to happen that has this overlaying effect. So we are the supply chain of commerce on top of the supply chain of the product for the cannabis industry. I love it. I love it. I love it a lot. You know, one thing that you mentioned in our first interview, and I wanted to follow up on, um, is you had mentioned that you wanted a, two causes that you cared about was, was ALS and Parkinson's and mm-hmm. you guys wanted to be able to give formulated, you know, quality, uh, quantitative data, um, to, to researchers on that. Um, have you able, been able to move that forward in, in the area that you've hoped or? Sadly, no. Um, and so, and this is not an excuse. It's still a, it's still a very personal goal of mine. Um, and I think it, it will become a reality. I, I really feel this, but, you know, collecting the data and, you know, we are HIPAA, PCI, PII compliant. Um, we had a small subset, 
you know, back then. So aspirationally, that was always a goal. You know, now that we're over 850, you know, CRBs, and we'll be over a thousand probably by the end of June, based upon projects that we have going on. You know, it's something that we really want to look towards for, you know, 2022, contacting those organizations, um, sharing information that their their constituency wants to share. And the challenge is that for a lot of those folks, you know, is cannabis helping? Yes. What'd you take? I don't know. I ate a cookie or I smoked this, or I had this tincture. Well, what was that? And, you know, these folks, they, they, you know, they're not going to read the label. They're not going to figure it out. So if we can facilitate that sharing of that information so that it matters more, you know, that still is a private, private goal for, for me. That's a great private goal to have. I really applaud that. That's why I wanted to bring that up again. So, um, one last question. I know you guys just uh, raised, uh, closed on a raise of 2.4 million of convertible debt, and you were oversubscribed on that round. Um, congratulations on that. Is it a little bit easier to raise funds these days? <laughs> so, Brian, you know, you and I hit it off on that 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 first fateful evening where we sat together. So you're yeah. going to be the first one to hear this. Okay. Yeah. So, um, we just did another note race. Oh, whoa. So details will be coming out. Took less than three weeks. I can imagine. And we could have been 200 plus percent oversubscribed. Wow. Um, Congratulations. We had, we had a killer first quarter. Uh, you know, Q2 is, you know, shaping up and we're going to crush our goals. Uh, and because of all the things that we've done in the marketplace and our reputation is now leading, we have as many inbound leads as we have outbound because of what we're doing. Um, our ability to scale as a company is in front of us. So we just did another note round. And so Good for you, we're looking at 2022. Yeah, yep. you're, you're, you're adding fuel to that fire. That's right there. Just how, mm-hmm. do, we, how do we expand growth on that one? Um, few closing questions I have for you. I want to keep within our time. I know we could probably talk for another hour on all these things, but a few closing questions I have just to really get a sense for you a little bit more deeper than as much as the audience does already. Um, what is your North star? How do you, when you're confronted with two hard choices, what do you, what do you look at to, to help, uh, make those decisions? What's right for the greater, the, the greater good. You know, I don't, I don't put, uh, I don't put self, uh, financial interest in front of anything. You know, I bootstrapped this company. I didn't take a pay paycheck for a long time. I refinanced my house in Florida. I liquidated a 401k because I believed in what we were doing. Um, much to the chagrin of my wife who, you know, great partner and, and supported me. Um, so because we're making a difference and, you know, people use that phrase just freely, but you know, we are seeing the impact that we're making and, um, yes, this is a commercial endeavor and long-term, I, you know, I believe it will be you know wildly successful, but you know, it's about doing it the right thing. And, and, you know, I've got an amazing team of people here, you know? And so, I mean, we, you know, we all share a passion for, you know, trying to do something different. You know, everybody said this will never work. And well, guess what? It works. Yeah. Look at all these funding rounds I got. We're, we're working now. We're, we're, we're serving, we're serving our customers. Yeah. Well, and, and the funding rounds are important, but you know, we've got revenue. I mean, yeah. we have healthy revenue and we yeah. have it, that many customers. 
tremendous growth in two years. I say mm -hmm. the funding rounds because obviously smart people are writing checks at that point. So mm -hmm. you know, if the people people believe in you guys now, and and not just customers and and, and your your banks that are coming These in. These are people that are heavily involved in the banking industry that are backing us too. That's that's the 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 smart money right there as well. Mm -hmm. um, how do you this personal question? When you're not working, when you're not you know green check. What is your what is your moment of zen? What is your sanity time? Like, what is your how do I get back to free? Are you out camping anymore with the with the Boy Scouts? <laughs> no, I, I don't do that. Uh, so you know, oh god, this could sound so cliche, but man, a walk on the beach. So um, I, you know, I, I'm very fortunate. Uh, you know, I I live in, I'm a Florida resident. I live in Florida full time now, and uh, you know, I'll just ride my bike nine miles, ten miles to the nearest beach. Or just throw it in the bushes, you know, and just walk around and, uh, you know, just being able to be outside. And it really is, you know, air, AirPods are already in, always in my ears. I don't know how many, how many tens of thousands of songs I have and shuffle on the iPod and my wife's always yelling at me, turn it down, but, and or audiobooks and just walking around and being able to think, you know, just yeah. being able to think and a lot of, um, a lot of reflection you know, about, you know, what have we done and what do we, what do we still need to do? Um, I'm not a, I'm not a rear view mirror guy at all, but you know, all those lessons, all those things, they just keep coming back, but I never apply them in where, well, when I was at tech server, when I did this, it's like, okay, this is my lesson. How do I share that? And how do we, how do we move it forward? It's great reflection time. Um, I, I, I mimic the same, but I definitely appreciate that. Um, cannabis founders that inspire you, people that are in an industry that you really, that you look up toward. Wow. Uh, you usually know, ask for two, one or two, like you don't need to. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, <laughs> yeah, ob obviously, you know, what, uh, what the guys at Harborside did, you know, Steve, Steve obviously is, uh, you know, he's a pioneer, but that ops team he has behind him that, that is in there. And, uh, David, you know, the lessons I learned from him. Uh, super cool. And then um, you also have some of the some of the folks who just, you know, they did it wrong. They flamed out and you're watching them and you're like, God, I hope this works. You know, I really want this to work. I, you know, they went public. I wrote a check and, you know, that's now some of my most expensive artwork, right? Because that's worth nothing today. Uh, and it gets back to doing it right. You know, hope is not a strategy. You know, over communicating is not good. Uh, so green check was in stealth mode for a long time. Yeah. You know, we were, we were the quiet company just out there doing our thing. So, so cool. there's inspiration on both sides, right? Yeah, there, there definitely who, who is. Does yeah, it well, and well, who does learn, it? learn from the failures and uh, admire the ones that are doing it right too. So, mm -hmm. um, so you guys obviously are flush with cash. People know how to get a hold of you anyway, but for people who haven't, uh, checked out green Verif uh, for green check verified yet, um, what are the best ways to connect with the, both the company and then also you personally? Khart at greencheckverified.com. I answer every email I get. Um, you can call me. It's on my email address. So you get that if you if you call LinkedIn, obviously. Um, new website coming out uh, soon. Nice. Super excited about the off. Oh, Brian, you know, we have Robert Phelps, who is uh, runs marketing here for us. Uh, he joined in January killer killer i love this kid and uh so i love the current one but uh, i'm looking to see, looking forward to see what you guys got wait wait until you see the new one um and the other thing is we're hiring you know yeah. so you know we're hiring like crazy so you know you'll find us on linkedin 
Awesome. Kevin, I'm glad we got a chance to do oh, me too, Brian. a founder's journey for, for, for you. Um, go back to the episode one. He goes a little more deep in, in some of these things, but um, it was really great to get to know you a little bit more as, as, as the uh, founder and CEO of uh, Green Check Verified. I just, I really appreciate it. I didn't know you were an Eagle Scout too. So that's always fun yeah. uh, to meet other ones. And I'm not surprised. <laughs> Kevin, I'll, I'll talk soon. Take care. Be good. Bye. Thank you for listening to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a Lit Up Media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was produced by Anthony Margola, edited by Brian Weber and Anthony Margola, theme music by Justin Cruz of Cruise Control Music. Links from today's episode are available in our show notes. If you received any value from our show, please take a second and leave a review in iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. It really helps. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at litupfounders, and on LinkedIn at litupmedia. Finally, our email address is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for listening and sharing the journey.